Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Unfounded Podcast. For this set of episodes, we're going to be breaking down the situation in Afghanistan and attempting to understand just how layered and complex it really is and definitely much more than it seems and that's in regards to Afghanistan's history as well as the involvement of the United States. Today's an especially special episode, especially special. Um <laughs> today's an especially special episode because we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. We have not one but two amazing guests with us. So the first guest is Sanjana Shriram who is passionate about the Afghan crisis and how it was dealt with and reached out to us to initiate the discussion on this topic. And we also have Dr. Shrinjoy Bose, who we were lucky enough to have on today and he does a lot of interesting work in international relations, critical peace and security and international development and amazingly enough one of his areas of expertise is Afghanistan. Hi Sanjana, hi Shrinjoy, it is an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast with us today. Thanks Mega for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Mega. Thanks, Sanjana, for having me on your show. I'm so so excited. Um, let's jump in. So we wanted to have both of you on to see how perspectives and understandings of a person who relies more heavily on available information, so Sanjana, um, differs from someone who has an academic, who as an academic specializes on the topic with all of these years of experience handy. Um, so I'd love to get started on like your situ- your thoughts on the situation and everything that's happening in Afghanistan right now. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to, I guess, kick it off. And I think it's pretty interesting because um the Afghanistan situation is all over the media right now, and I guess my understanding of it is that it's a war that's been going on for like over two decades, right? And it's quite a tragic event. It's quite sad to see. Um and the biggest question that I think is raising now is what are the consequences of this war now that the US has left like we're seeing on the news that you know there's so many civilian casualties there's so many people who are suffering because of this war and i guess just trying to wrap our heads around this it's quite a complex topic and it raises a lot of questions so i guess from my perspective i'm really interested to learn from you Shrini Joy and understand like what you think and whether this war was inevitable or if it was something which was you know not necessary at all so i guess that's my perspective yeah um well inevitable or inevitable um <laughs> or not evitable <laughs> um look i mean that, that reminds me of um um you know this brief um exchange uh, on a tv show it's a british tv show called uh, the thick of it um and they talk about this you know whether war is inevitable or whatever the opposite or antonym of inevitable is um i think the war in afghanistan this current phase which has just ended uh the us occupation that is uh in some ways was determined the moment you know the um al qaeda terrorist group carried out the attacks in the us 20 years ago i mean we're approaching the 20th anniversary of uh the the 9/11 attacks so the us invasion of uh, afghanistan to take out um al qaeda and it's um if not sponsors uh, those who harbored that group which is the Taliban group 
I mean, you couldn't avoid that. It was unavoidable, let's put it that way. So we knew the Americans were going to go in. Um, it wasn't going to go unanswered. And the only way to provide a repost would have been to go into Afghanistan to decimate Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So in that way, it was unavoidable. Um, however, you know, it's not a 20-year war. Uh, the 20-year period, which is the 2001, post-2001 period, is the latest phase of a 40-year conflict. Um, so conflict in Afghanistan dates back prior to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79. So between the years 76, 79, there was a lot of turmoil in Afghanistan, right? The, um, you know, the pro-communist regime in Afghanistan was floundering. Um, they, you know, cracked down on uh, peoples and different sec sections of society. So there was turmoil, there was uh, conflict and violence. The uh, pro-communist regime um, during that period is uh, known to have carried out, um, you know, massacres and so on and so forth. Uh, people went missing or people were disappeared. So there's an element of um, justice, you know, post-conflict justice that Afghans have been seeking that predate um, the U.S. invasion, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in 96. So it goes back all the way to the 70s. Because uh, the pro-communist regime, the PDPA, were floundering, the Soviets invaded with the pretext of, you know, buttressing and helping um, their ally. Uh, but the Soviets had their own agenda for invading Afghanistan. So so to cut a long story short, the conflict in Afghanistan has been going on for more than four decades. In, in, technically, we're in the fifth decade of um, conflict. Uh, it remains to be seen whether, as a nation, they've turned the page now uh, away from uh, overt conflict um, on a large scale, on a day-to-day -day scale. Uh, with the coming uh, back to power of the Taliban. You know, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because, like, the fact that you spoke about it being a conflict going on for over four decades, right, and having, like, different parties, like, different stakeholders, like the Soviets, the communists, yeah. the way the media has been spreading this, at least to my observation, is that it's just the U.S. versus Taliban, you know, that's all we hear about. Like, it's always been post 9-11 and post, I guess, the Taliban attacking, you know, America and it's getting revenge. And that's the kind of narrative that's been spun to us. I completely agree as well. I haven't looked um, too much into it because I was excited for this conversation and I wanted to kind of just like take it all in. But in saying that, all over social media, that's the only dichotomy that we've seen 100% and nothing else. So this is like completely new information, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So this is, um, it, it's such an interesting observation because it highlights a few things. Um, it really goes back in a way to imperial logics, right? The US is the last empire, so to speak, right? Um, even if it is floundering. Um the way they conducted the invasion of Afghanistan and everything that's happened since highlights um, 
imperial logics, imperial ways of um, relating to and conversing and dialoguing with the so-called quote-unquote other, right? And what we see is oftentimes uh, Afghan agency, Afghan autonomy, either being sidelined, um, uh, uh, buried uh, forcefully on occasion. Um, and what this does is it shifts the focus away from Afghans to uh, uh, you know the the imperial actor, right, and their relations with, say, uh, uh, the quote unquote enemy they have been fighting, whether it's Al Qaeda or the Taliban, and so that's that's you know classic imperial discourse, really, right? And we engage in that as well. We engage in that, as you rightly pointed out, um, you know, when uh, let's say in the throes of conflict, if the attention is more on American actions vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, where is the Afghan, um, whether they are Taliban or otherwise, in this conversation, in this discourse, in this narrative? Um, can we illuminate their lived experiences a little bit more? This is not to say that their lived experiences aren't illuminated. Uh, I think whether it's uh, uh, major media outlets or uh, less major media outlets, I think uh, we have been illuminating the everyday lived experiences of Afghans, but you're right to observe um, the logic of empire or the discourse of empire is acute in this conversation. And and as you uh, as you rightly pointed out, um, with the with the younger generations, are they aware of the decades long history of conflict in Afghanistan? Are they aware of how? The Americans supported the Mujahideen during the Soviet invasion, members of whom went on to later form the Taliban grouping, and so on and so forth. Those those layers of complexity um, uh, are not often focused on, and the corollary of that is um, Afghan voices aren't heard. And th there's something to be said about this in terms of, um, you know, uh, the concept that uh, Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, uh, speaks to us about um, this concept of the hierarchies of violence. And when you silo or silence people's voices, individual or communities, that's enacting violence. You're not providing them with an opportunity to share their experiences and illuminate their experiences, their interests, desires, wants, um, challenges, and so on and so forth. So empire is violent. And those manifestations of violence can be diverse. It's not just physical violence. It's the yeah. siloing. It's the silencing. It's this undermining of other people's voices. And we've seen this throughout. It's not just uh, Afghanistan. It's um, elsewhere as well. I guess what we're trying to get at, from my understanding, is by kind of making this distinction and focusing on the U.S.'s role, um, mm -hmm. are we contributing to like, like the kind of deterioration of what Afghan is of like what the country is capable of and how much it's hold it's capable of holding its own, um, by concentrating on you know what the U.S. has done, their impact, and all of that. Is that what's happening? Is that what you're getting at? Is that a question for me or Sanjana first? 
I'm happy for Sanjana to give it a go. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think that's a very interesting concept that you just described, Shreya Joy, and I can see how that is happening. And I do think that to an extent, if we're not showcasing, I guess, the experiences, the lived experiences that the mm-hmm. Afghanistan people who the so-called, I guess, who were all fighting to save and to give like freedom and give all these rights, if we're not showcasing their experiences, like, isn't that silencing their voice? Isn't that, I guess, diminishing their, I guess, value in contributing to their own narrative of their experience? Um so I definitely think that this is an issue and I do think that um, it can create long-term like violence, whether it be like, you know, societal like disconnect. I mean, the latest manifestation of that was um, the Trump administration's so-called peace process with the Taliban, right? So the Trump administration completely sil- sidelined the government of Afghanistan, the elected government of Afghanistan from the negotiating table. So it was a exit strategy that was discussed between the Americans and the Taliban. So, you know, the, the, the Afghan government who are representing um, its peoples uh, wasn't part of that. So that's another form of how this um, logic of empire of the silencing and siloing um, it, it has taken place. Having said that, I think, again, just to remind your, your listeners, I think uh, j- journalists, Afghan and otherwise, foreign journalists have for long been highlighting the everyday experiences of uh, Afghans. You know, it's not just about overt conflict, it's about how peoples and communities navigate and negotiate the everyday experience of conflict and yet go about their lives uh, whether it's experiencing hardship whether it's experiencing joy and uh, euphoria or loss actual loss by in terms of you know loved ones uh, you know losing their lives um, in this you know brutal conflict in this age age old conflict mm-hmm. um i think we have been doing that but we we we, we think I, at least I, I think that we could do more, particularly in times like this, particularly in times of transition. So uh, we need, the international community does need to focus on the lived experiences of minorities, women, youth, um, all of those people who have benefited to some degree with the introduction of democratic pluralistic politics in Afghanistan post-2001. And all of that is in in some sort of jeopardy right now, right? Uh, With the coming of the Taliban back to power, how do we preserve those gains made over the past 20 years? Uh, We now know that the Taliban have been cracking down on journalists. So if they're going to crack down on journalists, those lived experiences are going to be silenced. How are people going to be getting their information out? And I think, however, you know, social media has had a great role to play over here. I think... um, Afghans in particular, and if you if you look at, let's say, the ongoing conflict in Syria, Iraq, people have used Twitter and Facebook to get their lived experiences out there, um, if you know what I mean. And it's 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 an important tool and avenue for them 
to be able to express um, political views, political opinions, and of of really informing outsiders of what's going on. And so if you take that away from them, and the Taliban obviously have threatened to, you know, cut off uh, um, telecoms in, in Afghanistan or restrict telecoms in Afghanistan, how are people going to get, get that message out there? We know that the Taliban have been cracking down on, let's say, have used Facebook to hunt down peoples they don't like. Uh, whether it's civil society activists or, um, you know, government workers and so on and so forth. So we know that. So when people take to Facebook, they're actually making themselves a little vulnerable. There are other uh, ways of communicating WhatsApp and, you know, um, what's the other one? Signal, which are um, basically messaging applications available, which are a little little bit more protected. Um, but Facebook and Twitter have the ability to share that information with a wider audience, which is not necessarily private. Um, so the question marks um, abound about how we are going to be engaging with the lived experiences of Afghans post the Taliban takeover. But I think I want to mention, want to kind of respond to Mega your question about essentially you there were two questions in one whether uh, you know the invasion was a good thing was the broad quest you know sort of overarching question and i think underlying that you were also basically questioning whether hey whether this democratic project yielded anything right um It's 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 a complex question, um, and it depends on a whole host of factors. It depends on your political worldviews, your ideological worldviews, your philosophical worldviews, and so on and so forth. Um, usually and typically, in invasions where you know a foreign actor occupies a people's and their country doesn't yield in anything very positive, right? Uh, no one wants to live uh, under occupation, right? So, you know, we have seen repeatedly through the course of history, uh, peoples and communities, uh, you know, standing up to occupation, whether it's uh, of an outright colonial and imperial nature or of these intervention contexts, uh, you know, in the context of um, war and conflict, uh, to, you know, maybe with the ostensible aim to protect the populations and then help democratize the nation so so that such kind of um, egregious human rights violations don't take place in future. But the literature suggests, the evidence suggests, um, they don't yield many benefits, number one. We do see people rising up against them, number two, against the occupier, that is. And the longer the occupier stays in country, the worse it is for that society. And in a way, that's what we saw uh, it, or have witnessed in Afghanistan for a very long time. The Taliban have been saying that their raison d'etre of insurgency is the occupation. And for a very long time, they suggested that, you know, once the occupation ends, our reason to exist would end. Some skeptics, such as myself, have always also identified, okay, that's their justification, but they're not actually going to do that. They want to rule and control. 
Um, but they used that as a justification for a very long time, uh, which is why if you ask the people of Afghanistan, they for a very long time, and I don't mean just you know in, in recent years, I think since the mid-2000s, have actually said the occupation is actually doing more harm. So um, getting the troops to leave, getting foreign troops to leave, uh, was going to be the ideal outcome um, because it would rob uh, the Taliban of some of their legitimacy, right? Um, and then it w was would remain to be seen how they engaged with society. They continued conflict with um, with uh, the peoples of Afghanistan. Then you know, Afghans could rise up and say, "Hey, see, they 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 used to say, you know, we 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 are an insurgency because we are fighting the foreign occupation, but actually their true colors are that they want to dominate and control." Um, yeah, so I'm not entirely sure if I've answered your question, but I think um, as far as the Americans are concerned, uh, we see now that the democratic project, you know, failed, right? With the takeover of the Taliban, it has failed. Um, similar stories abound elsewhere as well. Uh, democratization projects tend to fail. Um, state building, where you are either establishing new institutions of state or you are establishing institutions of state in the image of western societies have not always borne fruit in fact more often than not they make things more complex Trini joy i have a question for you and i was very interesting what you spoke about and i guess what i'm asked curious about is if I guess this whole democratization project is bound to fail and I'm sure the US probably had a bunch of trusted advisors who could have told them that before going in was their agenda ever to um in the best interest of the Afghanistan people or was it more to I guess undermine the power of the Taliban yeah uh, I mean it's uh... It's diff It's it's not a black. I can't give you a black and white response over here, and I, and one shouldn't, right? It's a it's a little bit more gray. Um, I think the best way to approach that question is perhaps to start with what was the original goal and objective of the Americans going in by interrogating that objective. So the original goal was to destroy Al Qaeda, the sponsors of the the sponsors of the uh, attacks on American soil. So the Americans went in in 2001 with an ostensibly counter-terror mission, which subsequently then grew, ballooned and morphed into a state building project, right? And that's sort of where things started to unravel. Um, at one point in 2002, uh, the Taliban actually, some members of the Taliban approached um, the interim administration of President Karzai um, with a peace offering. Uh, now, there were actors within Afghanistan who didn't want the Taliban back in power or have anything to do in terms of a peace process. So they obviously were, were against that idea. But so were the Americans. No, we, we don't want to do anything to do with the uh, the Taliban. So I think they missed an opportunity there, right? Uh, in desiring the complete crushing of the Taliban 
uh, they missed a trick over there. Uh, the Bonn Compact, the Bonn Conference that took place in Europe, which was basically a conference bringing together uh, various Afghan stakeholders, except the Taliban, and uh, some international allies to chart a pathway for the future of Afghanistan, uh, they missed a trick as well by not having the Taliban present at you know those talks, at those negotiation talks. Um, I think in hindsight, it was a strategic blunder, but I can also see the American view. So soon after 9-11, they weren't going to have the Taliban sitting across them negotiating. Uh, that would not have you know, gone down well with the American public, right? Uh, so in a way, it was path dependent. Um, the, the actions of the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda meant that the, the Americans weren't going to enter uh, talks with them in the immediate aftermath, so post-2001, Um So they went all out to defeat uh, the, the Taliban and uh, Al-Qaeda, but we now know, obviously, uh, I have known for years that they weren't actually successful in defeating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, completely. They took shelter and refuge across the border in Pakistan, which allowed uh, the remnants of Al-Qaeda and uh, the Taliban to regroup over over years and then, you know, reconstitute themselves as an insurgent movement um, come 2006-07. That's really when we see the rise of the neo-Taliban. They recruited again and carried out a very effective counterinsurgency, which lasted 13, 14 years um, and eventually defeated uh uh, the Americans. We know from the literature as well that um, insurgencies and counterinsurgencies they they they're not they don't last for a matter of two or three years. They typically have um, they're typically sustained over a long period. Um, I mean, depending on which study you look at, um, I think the mean age is about eleven or thirteen years. I think so. They last a very long time, and that's exactly what we've seen over here. Um, they defeated the Americans. So I thought we'd end this part here because it is a lot to take in. Um, the key points that we covered during this first part of the interview are firstly to do with how the depiction of the situation in widely accessed media and even social media simplifies the complexities and nuances and in doing so promotes a much more imperial and westernized understanding of the dynamics that exist within Afghanistan. Um, Dr. Bose also spoke about how the role of the United States changed over time and the impact this had on their campaign. Um, in the next part, we'll continue to discuss this further, but we'll also talk about the perspectives that people in Afghanistan hold towards Australian soldiers and the Australian effort in terms of how we've done um, to help them out and end the discussion on what we can do as the wider public. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this first part. Make sure you follow us on your podcast listening app and Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these topics and suggestions on what we can talk about next. See you here again for part two. Bye.